Hi, Proof listeners. Now, if you're looking for new bingeable shows, then check out Acorn TV. They stream award-winning TV series and movies from the UK, Ireland, Australia, and beyond. Now, if, like me, you like mysteries and good period costumes and sets, then be sure to check out the new season of Murdoch Mysteries. One bite of this and he fell ill? Sir, he positively keeled over. I mean, the whole contest had to be canceled. Proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Just go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code P-R-O-O-F, to get your first 30 days for free. After that, it's just $5.99 a month. You know the drill. A friend lands a new job or a birthday sneaks up on you, and you need a gift. And you need it delivered fast. So what do you do? Well, if you want something delicious, locally made, and handcrafted, you should head to Edible's website or visit your local store. They've got so much more than just fresh fruit arrangements as well. There's all kinds of gourmet treats to choose from, like miniature New York-style cheesecakes or dark chocolate caramel popcorn. Or how about fresh-dipped chocolate strawberries? Well, Edible has something for every occasion and price point. And you can even get same-day delivery for those last-minute birthdays and other occasions. Or free next-day delivery. Visit Edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot com, offer code PROOF. Back in the early days of Cook's Country magazine, one of my jobs was to find recipes for a section called The Lost Recipe. We would take old-fashioned recipes and attempt to modernize them through modern ingredients and appliances. And so I was always looking for really historical recipes. That meant a lot of my time was spent at libraries. Google really wasn't a thing yet. Sometimes I would head to the Schlesinger Library in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they held some of Julia Child's personal cookbooks. You could look at them if you were in a special room where you had to wear white gloves, page through them carefully, and ask librarians for help if you wanted to make a copy. It was slow research, but it was still faster than using anything that resembled a search engine at the time. Finding what you wanted on the internet was like mining for gold. But at some point, I came across a very special website. Now, by today's standards, that website definitely looked outdated, but really, it was magic. I must have been looking for information on biscuits at the time, some really random, obscure biscuit. And then here was this website that started to list out all the different types of biscuits. Biscuits of the past, present, regional, cousins of biscuits, scones, and so forth. It was just this amazing place. And one of the first parts of the internet that I can remember where things seemed to be compiled in a place. A place just for me, or so it seemed. Almost as if someone said... Hey, Bridget, here's something that might be useful to you. That website was thefoodtimeline.org, and this is the story of how it came to be and the amazing woman behind it. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. 
Do you love delicious seafood? Are you mindful of seafood sustainability? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares delivers premium wild-caught seafood right to your door. From high-quality Alaskan king salmon to Pacific cod and Dungeness crab, the fish is caught by a collective of trusted small boat fishermen who use methods that respect the limits of our oceans. Don't know how to cook the fish? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares has got you covered. Visit SitkaSalmonShares.com for recipes and cooking tips and to purchase your monthly share of the harvest. Proof listeners get $25 off the first month of a premium Sitka seafood share if you go to SitkaSalmonShares.com slash proof. Sitka Salmon Shares, premium wild-caught seafood delivered. Almost everyone who ends up on the food timeline gets there the same way. They have a question about food, and they are looking for an answer on the internet. This is Sarah Vitek, a reporter for this story. So, Bridget, you said that you use the food timeline a lot for finding historical recipes for Cook's Country magazine. I also talked to Lisa McManus. Well, that makes sense to me. Lisa works on the reviews team and does research into the ingredients and equipment that we use in the building. Yeah, she is always trying to find good research on the history of particular ingredients or kitchen equipment. But before she stumbled on the food timeline, it was really slow going. She was looking at promotional materials. She was digging up patents. She was trying to pull things out of scientific journals that were really hard to understand. It's very unsatisfying. I don't have access to vast research beyond the internet. So finding something like the food timeline, it's awesome. It's great. It was exactly what I was looking for. So, Bridget, you and Lisa found this site in the late 90s, early 2000s. The internet was really young. It was the era of GeoCities and WebRings when people were creating their own simple HTML websites. Back then, the food timeline would have looked pretty typical, if anything, kind of serious and professional. It had a solid-colored background and huge blocks of text. No pictures, no GIFs, just tote background, text with copious amounts of information, and food history, and the occasional hyperlink. It's almost hard to imagine a website like that in this day and age. But if you type www.foodtimeline.org into your browser, the website is basically the same as it was back then. It feels like time traveling. Dana Evans came across the site more recently. My name is Dana Evans. I'm a journalist and reporter. I've written for Eater, Taste, Bon Appetit, all of the sort of food sites. The question that brought Dana to the food timeline was in 2018 for a story she was writing about the history of bread soup. I remember just like Googling. It was the first thing that came up. And I was like, what is this website? (laughs) It's insane. It's like... I spent, I think that day, even though my story was due that week or something, it was like I spent like two hours just scrolling on the food timeline and about nothing related to my actual story. The website was designed to be easy to understand and to organize historical information clearly. The homepage has a long timeline with hyperlinked text to the history of raw ingredients on one side and hyperlinks to the history of dishes and recipes on the other. But the design combined with the sheer quantity of information makes getting lost on the site pretty inevitable. Plus, the hyperlinks are placed so that questions or titles really pique curiosity. 
did Franklin Delano Roosevelt really serve hot dogs to the king and queen of England? Or where did they get ice before we had refrigerators? I mean, who wouldn't want to click on these? Every entry is shockingly thorough and long. It's chock full of direct excerpts from books, newspapers, historical sources. And several entries show the evolution of a recipe over time, many which are from primary sources. For example, European interest in grapefruit blossomed when United States athletes demanded it be served at the 1936 Olympics. The very first marshmallows were plants, Althea officinalis, indigenous to Europe and Asia. The flowers were favored by the ancient Greeks and Romans because they were considered to be healthful. There's even an entry on Kool-Aid pickles. From Kool-Aid Livens Up Family Pickle Jar, Ventura County Star, California, May 31st, 2007, community section. No page provided. I know the look on your face right now. It's not pretty, by the way, because I saw it on my wife when I announced that I was going to make a batch of Kool-Aid pickles. This entire inconceivably large project was all the work of one woman, Lynn Alver. Okay, just to put in perspective the sheer magnitude of the site, the main timeline page, if you printed that, it would be nine pages long, just of links to pages with information. And then if you look at the longest subcategory, that's the page on meat, it has a whopping 180,000 words, and when printed, it would be 272 pages. The amount of work it took to find the information, type it up, edit it, organize it, and publish it online is just really inconceivable. And this is all two years before Wikipedia even existed. I mean, at this same time period, you couldn't even pay a parking ticket online. For about 15 years, Lynn ran the website entirely on her own. She compiled and published all the information in her free time. Lynn personally answered 25,000 questions sent in by food professionals like Bridget and Lisa, but also by people researching family recipes or fourth graders working on school projects. But let's step back for a minute. To really understand the significance of the food timeline, you need to know Lynn. She got a job at uh, Roslyn Public Library. Excuse me, edit that out, whoever you are. Uh, Bryant Library. <laughs> okay, let's start over. Uh, this is Lynn's sister, Janice. My name is Janice Martin. I am Lynn's sister, and I'm very proud of her. Lynn and Janice, they moved around a lot growing up, but they spent their formative years in Long Island, New York in the 1960s. Janice says they were raised as New Yorkers. Their father, Cornwell, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. He would take them to museums, and he quoted Shakespeare, and encouraged them to explore the world. He really inspired a sense of curiosity in both of them. For Lynn, that curiosity led her to the library. She got her first job at a public library at the age of 16. She worked in the children's section. She loved the job. The mission of the public library system really fit her like a glove. In 1991, Lynn had an interview for a job as a reference librarian at the Morris County Library in New Jersey. On the day of her interview, there was a huge snowstorm. 
Lynn lived in Connecticut at the time, so no one at the library expected her to show up, including Sarah Weissman, who worked at the library then. So everybody at the county library was convinced she wouldn't show up from Connecticut, but she did. This is Lynn. She drove through a storm to her interview, perfectly typical, and she was hired and uh, very rapidly became assistant department head because she was so competent and so good at massive amounts of work. Sarah and Lynn hit it off almost immediately. They had a lot in common. They both spent time in New England, had children around the same age, and they both had cats and would trade off cat sitting duties. We clicked on a lot of of levels and made each other crazy on other levels. She was a much neater housekeeper than me, and whenever she sat for the cat and I came back, she'd offer to clean my fridge. And I'd decline, you know, that sort of thing. And it wasn't just house-sitting. Lynn went the extra mile in every area of her life. Her husband, Gordon, told me about how she published the library's newsletter. And I'd say, where are all these expenses for paper? I mean, we're buying thousands of reams of paper. What's all this all about? She'd say, well, the library won't pay for it. I've got to get this thing out, so I'm buying it. I was like, okay. So I never begrudged her doing that because I knew how important it was to her. If there was a snowstorm or some major event coming and, you know, they had to close the library uh, or she was concerned that people might slip and fall, she would be outside shoveling. She would go outside and spray uh, salt all over the place so nobody fell. And if there was a water break or something at the building, even on the weekend, she would always show up and work with the construction folks to make sure it was all taken care of so the library was ready to open up first thing next morning. There were even articles written in the local newspaper, you know, a picture of her shoveling, you know, county library director shoveling snow. (laughs) And then they'd interview her and she'd say, it has to get done, so I'm going to do it. Lynn's professional training as a librarian actually had nothing to do with food. Her first focus was career resources. She created a lunchtime seminar so that people could learn how to update their resume and search for jobs online. Hi there. So you finally decided to find out what all this internet stuff is about. You've heard the words and phrases, internet, world wide web, cyberspace, information superhighway. But what is it? Where did it come from? Back in 1991, web browsers were limited. Netscape and Internet Explorer wouldn't come onto the scene for three more years. And this is pre-Google, at least Google as we know it. Search engines didn't really exist yet. Yahoo wasn't a thing until 1995, and it was only a directory in those days. So you had to know the address of the website, or you had to look it up in a version of the Yellow Pages for the Internet. The Morris County Library, where Lynn worked, was the first library system in the country to get on the internet and offer it to the public. An internet service provider called Belcor was curious to see what people would do with it. So they funded the library's internet for two years and gave them 200 free accounts for the internet and email. Here's Sarah Weissman again. I taught a class at the local library, and one man, we're explaining how it works, and one man stopped and he said, I don't understand. This is free. It goes from Sweden to the United States to my computer and it's free. And the answer was, yes, sir, it is. And he just had great difficulty understanding it. So Sarah then taught herself how to code from books and she used that to teach Lynn the basics. And from there, Lynn just took off with it. 
Together, they both made a website for the library and then they made one for the town. They put in tons of hours outside of the office. And we had a very funny session sitting on the floor of my living room with a stack of index cards designing the structure of the website. You know, which should go where, which should be above which, what were the information trees and so forth and so on. We're sitting here throwing index cards around. Fast forward, I'm glad to say years later, even though somebody else had taken over the website, it won an award for the, the information structure of the thing. She and I are like, yes! <laughs> Librarians rule. Lynn's next project was a website all about health, focused on people's eyes, which included links to the CDC's website. People largely weren't that interested. But even in that early experiment, you can see the recurring theme of Lynn trying to make useful information available to as many people as possible. She understood the possibilities of the internet. She saw how it could democratize information and get it into people's hands. Her iHealth website may not have been successful, but she was experimenting with making different types of information available. And eventually, she had another idea. Lynn loved all things food. She was known by her friends and family for experimenting in the kitchen and never using a recipe. Here's her sister Janice again. Was she a great chef? No, but was she was a really inventive chef? Absolutely. I mean, she would come up with the craziest little combinations and someone would say, oh, I love it. Can I have the recipe? Nope. <laughs> Why not? Well, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know really how it happened, but I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> Lynn considered herself a foodie. So one year, she researched and published a factual description of the first Thanksgiving dinner for the library's website and newsletter. And it got a lot of traffic. She did it again for Christmas dinner, then the Dickensian dinner. This historic food research would eventually become the food timeline. Sometimes her recipes didn't work out, and sometimes her websites didn't work out. But Lynn kept trying and followed her instincts. People seem to be more interested in food history than in eye health. By March 1999, Lynn had moved her food history project off the Morris County Library's website onto its own website. The design was inspired, unsurprisingly, by a new book that the library had just gotten. Lynn explained this in a podcast interview with Heritage Radio Network. I was inspired by James Traeger's Food Chronology. Right. This is a uh, book that the library had recently acquired. And I took a look at that and I said, well, what if we could do something like that online? And uh, did some research. And back in 99, there weren't a lot of websites out there um, with a lot of information. There were some uh, agricultural extension services and things like that. So that's really um, where it started. And over the years, I got asked, questions that could not be answered by other organizations. So I started digging and providing my own content. I fell in love with food history. Lynn wasn't the only one fascinated by the food history research she was doing. The site drew so much traffic, it was swamping the library's server. It was also taking up a ton of Lynn's time. So eventually the library said, look, this has to be a personal project. So Sarah Weissman, Lynn's friend and colleague at the library, decided to buy Lynn her own domain as a surprise for her birthday. Foodtimeline.org was officially born. Sometimes Lynn needed a little push. And I don't know that she 
was confident initially that she could manage it herself, just the technical end of it. But obviously, she had no problems. The food timeline grew exponentially from there. Lynn had an email and a Twitter account where people could send her questions. She would research them and return an answer within 24 hours. Folks at America's Test Kitchen were using it a lot. For example, Lisa McManus would send Lynn a one-line email, something like, Hi Lynn, I'm trying to learn when the first toaster ovens were introduced and anything else about the earliest versions you can find. Thank you. And Lynn would send back pages and pages full of single-space, fascinating, exhaustive primary research with a bibliography including title, page number, everything. She'd even scan and attach pages from old newspapers or cookbooks. Just floods and floods of information would come back to her. It was exactly what I was looking for. You know, nothing like, oh, here, you know, a little piece of this relates to what you want and a little piece of that, and you have to put it together. She could, like, go round up the most obscure things and bring them to you by email. And it was free! Yeah. <laughs> I had a feeling we were sort of both geeking out about the same stuff, so that was fun, you know? I mean, it's hard to find people who, like, really care what 1955 ads for toaster ovens looked like, you know? But I do, and she clearly yeah. did. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember it that way, too. I started emailing Lynn more and more often, and it was just phenomenal to me. She had this passion that would come through, and she also had the ability to kind of act as, I don't know, a guide, right? If I was going in the wrong direction, she would say to me, absolutely not, Bridget, and then she'd steer me back into the right direction. Or if I was making certain assumptions about food, Lynn would always step in and say, I don't think that sounds right. And then she'd be able to call up all of the reasons that I was incorrect and maybe, kindly, offer a different way for me to consider. And Lynn didn't just do this for food magazine editors. It didn't matter if you were a fourth grader doing a class project or a reporter writing for Bon Appetit. Lynn would research all incoming questions with the same enthusiasm and rigor. And I have wonderful, wonderful resources at my fingertips that the average um, you know, library does not have, and the average scholar does not have time to service. So mm. I kind of, I hope I bridge that gap. She eventually amassed a personal library of over 2,300 books, plus mementos and ephemera that she used as primary source material for her food timeline. Everything from books from the 1600s to Jello recipe books from the 1960s to paper cups from famous Philly cheesesteak joints. The only two pieces of furniture now in the living room that uh, do not hold books, actually one piece is the couch. <laughs> the piano is a wonderful bookcase. Great place. And the piano bench holds a fabulous menu collection. <laughs> it took over her living room and it took over her life. And remember, she still had her full-time job as director of the library. And again... She provided this on-demand food research service entirely for free. Lynn was a reference librarian by trade, and she really valued the lost art of researching with primary sources. Nowadays, there's Wikipedia, there's Google. Information is at your fingertips. But is it always accurate? Is it vetted? This is something that Sarah Weissman still feels strongly about. What people don't do anymore, and this has come up a lot, 
in the last few years, shall we say, to be polite about it, people no longer have any sense of authority. Is it authoritative information? Is it factual information? It's in the Google. That's it. They don't bother to look at sourcing. Lynn was committed to providing well-researched information to the people who used her site. Whenever her family went on vacation, her laptop came too. And every day, when her kids got home from school, they knew they could find her at the computer answering food timeline questions. Lynn's son, Jason, remembers it this way. But she would always start the grilled cheese, and then I would hear the um, clicking away from the the computer room, and then I'd hear, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And she would just lose track of time while she was working on on a question that was fascinating her. And the grilled cheese would get a little crispy. I never told her that they were burned. I always said they were good. And and they were, but she knew. (laughs) So to this day, I cannot have a grilled cheese if it's not burnt on at least one side, because it just doesn't taste right. After a while, the food timeline got so popular that Lynn was a quasi-celebrity in the culinary world. One year, her kids gifted her a cooking class. And before the class started, Kathy Kaufman, a renowned chef instructor, told everyone there was a celebrity in the class. Lynn started looking around, wondering who it was. And then Kaufman said, I just want everyone to know that Lynn Olver of Food Timeline is here and everyone's jaws just dropped. And it was like she was the celebrity in the room. And and, um, I think she was a little embarrassed because of how humble she was. I mean, you read whenever she's writing about anything on the, uh, the Food Timeline, she uses the word we. And I think it's for a few reasons. One is... You know, there were countless people that resulted in that conglomeration of knowledge, whether they wrote books or articles or or anything like that, that she was able to pull from. But also, she just, she was just very humble. By 2014, Lynn was starting to think about retirement. She told her sister, I think I figured out what my career is going to be. And she was like, you know, older than me. And she's like, you know, mid-50s. And she's like, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's what she said. And she says, I want to do the food timeline full time. She had plans to write a book and had just renewed the food timeline domain for another 10 years. But one morning in September 2014, Sarah Weissman looked at the food timeline's Twitter account and saw something strange. Picture of an omelet on a hospital tray. And even I wrote to her and said, excuse me, why is the food timeline posting hospital omelets in Twitter? What's going on? Um, She said, oh, I was hospitalized last night, by the by. Lynn had been diagnosed with leukemia. She was in and out of the hospital battling the cancer for the next several months. Everyone, including Lynn herself, believed she was on the path to recovery. But in April of 2015, it became clear that she wasn't. Lynn passed away on April 14, 2015. She was 57. She was still answering questions and adding entries to the food timeline up until 10 days before her death. After the break, the fate of the food timeline without Lynn. While we've all been itching to go outside and feeling cooped up, if you will, The hens at Pete and Jerry's Organics have been living a life of freedom. They've been roaming around in open pastures, foraging for delicious grasshoppers and grubs, and munching on organic feed. This lifestyle and a good diet 
makes their eggs the highest quality in the egg aisle. Feet and Jerry's organic eggs have tall, firm yolks with a deep golden hue and creamy texture. Perfect for use for a comforting egg drop soup or an old-fashioned vanilla frozen custard. Just like those hens, let your imagination roam free about your next recipe using Pete and Jerry's organic eggs. Believe in what you buy. Pete and Jerry's organic eggs are available nationwide at a fine grocer near you. You know when you're baking and you have to move your head up and down every time that you need to look at the side of the liquid measuring cup? Yeah, well, the folks at OXO hate that too. And that's why they designed the OXO Angled Measuring Cup. Karen Schnellwar, who heads up brand and marketing for OXO, explains. What OXO learned was with certain materials, we can actually bend in the cup on the side. It actually creates an angled ramp And that allows us to print on that internal ramp that allows you to accurately measure things in our measuring cup without having to bob your head up and down, without having to move your arm up and down. Measure better and from above. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. Hey there, Proof listeners, it's Bridget here, and I've got a real craving for mangoes lately. So I called on my test kitchen colleague, Carmen Dongo, to see if she can point me to some exciting new recipes. Hey, Carmen. Hey, Bridget. So what do you have for me? Well, here's some delicious options. You can have them no matter what season or time of year. First up, mango mint salsa. This salsa is fresh and delicious, combining sweet mango, tart lime juice, and spicy minced jalapeno. Oh, this sounds so good because it's going to heat you up and cool you down at the same time. That's right. (laughs) Next up, we have amkilasi, also known as mango yogurt drink. Our recipe uses a pinch of salt and squeezed lime to perk up the flavors of the mango. Perfect. I could drink that by the gallon. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have Middle Eastern pickled mango. Did you know mangoes can be fermented? Ooh, tell me more. This process will both preserve the mangoes and add a little pucker to it. It's great to eat on its own, or you can use it to make a pickled mango sauce called amba, which can be used on seafood, kebabs, and even eggs. Nutritious and delicious. Go to mango.org proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. Now, back to our story. The food timeline had been going strong for 15 years. Lynn had personally answered 25,000 questions, and the site had reached over 35 million views. Sarah posted a link to Lynn's obituary on the food timeline. It listed many of her professional food world accomplishments, but it's really the comments section that tells the full story. One person wrote, As I'm sure must be true with many of her friends, I met her through the food timeline when I was doing research for a culinary project. And as I've heard many mutual friends say, I also thought she was a whole team of stellar humans. I had no idea one person could achieve so much while being so wise, funny, down to earth, and ever insightful. 
there was an outpouring of love after Lynn's death. She had lived a life of service, and the people she had served were grateful. Both her husband Gordon and her son Jason told me about a stranger who spoke at her memorial service. He had been a patron at the library and came in looking for a book one day. The library didn't have it in their collection. The next morning, Lynn came in and handed him the book. She had gone out and bought it at the local bookstore herself. She went out, she found it, she bought it, and she made sure that he had access to it. And it was so profoundly touching for him, even though she would have thought nothing of that. She would have, that's part of the job. And, but he was so profoundly touched that he actually made a point to attend and stand up and say some words about that moment and how touched he was. Sarah Weissman kept the website running at the most basic level. Gordon had never had a proper conversation with Lynn about what she would have wanted done with the website and her legacy because they both thought that she was going to make it. But they had a sense of what she would have wanted. Her husband put it this way. For the most part, all we really wanted was some assurance that it would continue for a long time, indefinitely would be best, (laughs) Uh, that the books would be accessible to the public, that Lynn would always be given credit for what she had done. Gordon reached out to some people, and some people reached out to him, but everyone wanted the books and not the website, or the website and not the books, or just to offer financial support. But Gordon felt that the books and the website needed to stay together. That was Lynn's vision for the food timeline. So he never accepted any of the offers. For five years after Lynn's death, Gordon looked for a new home for the food timeline. Promising starts always ended up being the wrong fit or they would fizzle out. I had almost, I hadn't given up, but I was resigned to the fact or the possibility this might never happen. The domain was set to expire in the next couple of years. Prospects were not looking good. But then, just at the last minute, serendipity. I think that's a good word for how it came together. I mean, we didn't contact Dana. She saw the website and she... Remember Dana from the beginning of the story? My name is Dana Evans. I'm a journalist and reporter. She was the one looking for bread soup history and then spent hours rabbit-holing through the site. It was just an immediate instinct. I have to email this woman and tell her how amazing this site is because... Or email the people who are running the site because it just... I'd never seen anything like it before. Dana started going back and forth with Gordon. And then, through their discussions, she decided to write a story about the food timeline. Really, it was a story about Lynn. Dana titled the story, Who Will Save the Food Timeline? She knew it would generate interest in the site, and she hoped that it might attract some potential candidates to take over Lynn's legacy. She wanted to help Gordon. I tried to tell him a few times, you know, when this story goes up, like, Eater has a big audience. I think that there's going to be a lot of attention to the site and people are going to be interested in taking it over. And I, I'm, I know that he believed me, but it was like, I don't think that we necessarily knew to what extent. And I was overwhelmed with how much interest. There's probably 95 or so people, but representing about 80 different individual groups that were interested in taking over the food timeline. Some of them were individuals, some of them were universities. Uh, we even had some pretty famous people who wanted to help. Gordon made a spreadsheet of all the applicants. I'm a spreadsheet kind of person. (laughs) He reviewed it with the rest of the family and Sarah Weissman. But the application from the Special Collections and University Archives Department at Virginia Tech really stood out. 
Unlike any other applicants, Virginia Tech had brought together a few professors from different departments interested in working together on the food timeline. Kira Dietz is the Assistant Director of Special Collections and University Archives at Virginia Tech. She says she knew about the food timeline and knew that Lynn had passed away, but she didn't realize that the website needed a new curator. So I was kind of surprised, actually, when in July of this year, um, I was contacted by two professors in the same day about the article that had come out saying the family was looking for a new home for the collection. Kira didn't hear back for a bit. So she figured the Ulvers had a bunch of really good candidates and that they had chosen someone else. I was extremely caught off guard um, when out of the blue my phone rang one day and uh, Gordon Oliver called to say that they wanted to talk more about how the collection might fit in here and what we could do. And it sort of snowballed from there. Their program is focused on experiential learning. So they intend to have students across departments work on the food timeline. That could include everything from web design to history to social media and communications. And so we had a bunch of conversations. And in the end, we all sort of agreed. And I've been jumping up and down ever since. I'm so excited. Kira and Gordon worked together to get 94 boxes of books delivered to Virginia Tech, which was no easy feat. All of the books are being appraised and cataloged. Gordon is donating the collection and the website to the school for free. He's also hoping to use any money from the tax deduction to start a scholarship in Lynn's name. But even without a scholarship, Lynn lives on through her life's work, the food timeline. The website still continues to be incredibly important. It's, among other things, a record of where we've been. Of course, such a record will always be incomplete, but it's an important place to record humanity's experience with food. Lynn's resources were finite. She largely depended on newspaper clippings and cookbooks, But what she did with these resources was nothing short of amazing. As long as the food timeline is still up and accessible, Lynn's work will continue to help us know who we are. Gordon and Jason say they both visit the food timeline much more now than they ever did while Lynn was alive. They visit just to browse and get the feeling of her presence. Yeah, it's something where I can see, and in her writing style, I can hear her voice. I don't know, I, I like to cook because I feel her in the kitchen with me every time that, that I'm in there. And, and especially I, uh, my dad gave me her wok and her panini press. And so I use those very frequently. My wok food tastes nothing like her wok food, though. She would make the best fried rice. And I just, man, I wish I could go back in time and, and ask her to show me how she did it. <laughs> Lynn's love of cooking lives on through her son. And her tireless commitment to research lives on through the food timeline itself. And it'll still be here, nostalgic 90s aesthetic and all, inspiring future generations of curious people to dig into the history of everything from kimchi to Kool-Aid pickles. Her friend Sarah Weissman thinks that is exactly how Lynn would have wanted it. I think she'd be excited that it was starting up again, which is how I think of it. I sort of think of it as a second launch of the food timeline. Yeah, it's been hibernating and now it's going to come out of its den or whatever. And I think that would excite her. 
Thanks to producer Sarah Vitak for reporting this story. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Rickert is our producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete and Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible Arrangements, and Sitka Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 